Good morning. Wow. That's some enthusiasm. I appreciate that. Um, I'm Mike Brown. Uh, my wife Linda and I and my mom Dottie have been attending here for about two months. And Guy tells me that that's the initiation to be part of this. You hit the two-month mark, you have to preach. Is that, is that true? Is that All right, so you've all been through this, so you know what it's like. All right, just checking, just checking. Um, most of you don't know anything about me. When somebody stands up in front of you to preach, you ought to know just a little something. But this morning is not about me. It's about God, obviously. So let me just say this. I'm actually an ordained pastor in our denomination, the Evangelical yeah. Covenant Church. How about that? Woohoo! Um, but you should still test what I say. You should be a Berean. And you should test what I say. That's right, it is, isn't it? Yeah. So maybe you will pray with me before we start. Father, thank you for this gathering this morning. Thank you that you brought your saints together in this time and this place for your purposes. Thank you, Lord, that we can gather together with the saints who've gone before us and say, holy, holy, holy to the Lord God Almighty. We can gather together with the church around the world who is today worshiping with you and lift our voices. Lord, we pray for Guy and Charissa in Indianapolis as they try to honor well Charissa's mother. We trust you, Lord, that you are guiding them in that, that you'll bring them safely home. Lord, it's been on my heart to pray for Pastor John and Corona Presbyterian Church in downtown Denver, who in just a few minutes will be reaching out to their neighborhood to show your love. Lord, I know that you've preceded them in that work. Give them the courage to simply follow you. And Father, for the Snuffer family, as they, um, as they grieve a loss this morning, thank you, Lord, for the process of grief, the healing process of grief. And thank you, Lord, that you will comfort that family in the midst of it. So, Lord, I pray that only the things that you would have me say come out of my mouth this morning and only what you would have us remember stays in our heart. So we pray this in Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Well, for the past few weeks, we've been talking about this idea of community. So I want to stick with that theme. Guy's been talking to us about the, using the language of veritas, healthy and missional. You remember that. And so he's been unpacking a little bit chapter 12 of the book of Romans to help us understand what it is to be a healthy missional church. And so I want to continue that thread with you this morning. The letter of Romans, as you might know, one of the reasons it was written is because there was strife in the Roman church. When the church, when Christianity came to Rome, the Jews and the Gentiles who turned to Christ, of course, formed a church. But the Gentiles looked to the Jews for leadership because the Jews were God's chosen people. They knew, the, they knew the things of God. They knew the scriptures in the way that the Roman Gentiles didn't. And so the Jews naturally ascended to leadership in the Roman church. 
Well, around AD 49, Emperor Claudius kicked the Jews out of Rome. Too much strife going on around this Christianity thing, so he just kicked the Jews out. Well, for the next five years, the Gentiles had to take over the church. So they assumed the leadership roles and, uh, and began to run the church, learn the scriptures. At the end of those five years, Nero allowed the Jews to come back in. So now the Jews come back into a very different church than what they left, because now they're not in charge anymore. And so a power struggle ensues. And there was enough tension going on in that church of Rome that it caught Paul's attention hundreds of miles away. And so one of the reasons he writes the letter to the church of Rome is to address the strife in the church. Well, Paul knew the importance of being one in Christ, for a body to be one in Christ. Paul undoubtedly knew what Jesus has said, by the way you love each other, they will know us. They will, they will, they will know that you're my disciples. He said, um, uh, Paul, knew that, Paul knew that the world would know Christ because of the way his followers lived together. Paul knew that. There's a missionary who went to South India. His name is Leslie Newbigin. He said the only hermeneutic, hermeneutic is a fancy word for the way we read the, the Bible, the only hermeneutic of the gospel is the life of the congregation in which believes it. The life of the congregation. Paul knew all these things. But I wonder whether we really know that. Because in survey after survey today, we see that the church behaves not all that differently from the world. And so I wonder whether we really understand what it means to be one with Christ and one together. So I want to unpack that a little bit today. And I want to talk about it in terms of the Trinity. Now, Guy talked a little bit about the Trinity last week, and I want to talk more about that. Because we're Trinitarian people. And if we don't understand that we're Trinitarian people, we don't understand how to live together in unity, in community, and then to do mission out of that. So we won't grasp this idea of healthy and missional. So we have a graphic up here. And, uh, oops, Karen, I think I've goofed you up. I think what I want to do is stand and read Romans 12 first. Romans 12, verses 1 through 5. So why don't we stand and read that together. So we read the first three verses last week. We're going to read those again, and then we'll read the next two verses. So therefore... I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is true worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and the one members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, through many, perform one body, and each member belongs to all the others. 
this is the word of God. Thank you. Okay, sit down. So I'd like to focus on this idea of oneness that Paul picks up on. Because Paul gets it. So we have the Trinity. How many of you have seen that picture before? This is known as the shield of the Trinity. It's been around for about 1,300 years. For 1,300 years, people have liked it and retweeted it. It's that popular. <laughs> so this is what it means to be the Trinity. This, you know, we talk about the Trinity. We talk about, perhaps if you've heard some of the, the uh, metaphors, we try and use water, which exists in liquid, solid, and steam. And we try and talk about the Trinity that way, or the egg, which is the shell and the yolk and the, the white stuff. What's the white stuff? White stuff? Egg white. Thank you. Somebody knows the name of it. 1,300 years ago, this is what they tried. So in the upper left corner, if you can't read that at the back, is the Father. Upper right corner, the Son. The bottom, the Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son. The Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Father is God. The Son, not the Father, not the Spirit. The Son is God. The Spirit is not the Father, is not the Son, but is God. It's a pictorial Um, illustration of something that's very difficult for us to grasp. The orthodox statement of the Trinity is very simple. God is three persons. Each person is fully God. There is only one God. Very simple. Y'all got that? All right, I'm glad. So we know God the Father by many names, right? If I were just to ask you for some names, you would... Pop off a lot of them. There's creator, ruler, rock, redeemer, lots of names. Jesus we know by lots of names. Lord, Savior, friend, the word, king. But it's actually some of those names that can get in our way. Because we forget who God the Father and God the Son is in their essence. So, I've noticed that you like to do a little congregational chatter among yourselves because you're all theologians and philosophers. And I think that's a great thing. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis 1.1. The beginning of the book. It's right after the book of Table of Contents. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning. So, if you're a quiet, reserved person like I tend to be and you want to reflect to yourself, that's great. If you would rather think with somebody else, turn to somebody next to you and answer this question. What was God doing before the beginning? All right, you, all right, you theologians and philosophers. What did you come up with? What's he doing before the beginning? All right, having a board meeting and planning the world. What do you think? Okay, they're enjoying each other. All right. Other thoughts? You get into great issues of... Uh, Questions about the philosophy of time when you begin to ponder this question. Because if, if in the beginning, we tend to say that in the beginning time was also created, the definition of time is a sequence of events. So if God is planning before creation, that's a sequence of events, so there's time. So now your head starts to twist way in the back. Hello. All right. So before time, God was self-sufficient. Before time began, before the beginning... God was always, first and foremost, Father. Jesus was always, first and foremost, Son. Before they were Creator, King, Ruler, all of the names we give to God, 
Those came at the moment of creation. Before that, God the Son, God the Father, were always just Father-Son, gazing lovingly at each other. The Father, life-giving, eternally begetting the Son. The Son getting His identity from the Father. The Father getting His identity from the Son. Eternal relationship. Does that make sense? That's what was happening before creation. For all eternity, whatever that means. Father and Son in loving relationship. Now where's the Holy Spirit in this? A number of theologians believe that the Holy Spirit is actually the personification of the relationship. That the loving relationship between the Father and the Son is so real that it's a person that we call Spirit. That make it clearer for you? <laughs> this is a very difficult concept. Yeah, it's a very difficult concept. We want to be really careful about the Son coming into existence. Because that we get into what's known as the Arian heresy, which was back in the 400s-ish, when we believed Arian used to say there was a time when the Son was not. That was his slogan back then. So we want to be really careful about that. Well, <laughs> what we know from our scripture is that the Son is an eternal being. So there's an eternal Son, eternal Father. And then we have the Spirit. One of the most important things about Jesus is not that he died for our sins, but that he shows us the Father. Jesus himself says in John 14, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you, know, you have known him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? The reason that's important is because if we know Jesus as eternal Son, now we know the Father as eternal Father. And we understand that they have lived all of eternity in this mutual relationship of loving and caring. And that the Father, by His very nature, before creation, was other-centered toward the Son. Life-giving, eternally begetting of the Son. It's important for us to know. It's a relationship in which each member of the Trinity fully knows and is fully known by the other. Imagine what that would be like to be in that kind of relationship where you're known and fully know the other. We really don't have much experience of a relationship like that. And yet it still is a, a relationship of unconditional love. So we have three unique persons, Father, Son, Spirit. Three unique persons as one. Theologians refer to this as unity in diversity. It's a hallmark of the Trinity that they are one even though they are three distinct persons. There's oneness in the diversity. That's a critical point for us to understand when we think about community. Oneness in diversity. When we think about what it means to be healthy, that's what it means. Oneness in diversity, and we're going to unpack that in just a minute. So let's talk just a minute about missional in terms of the Trinity. Last week, you remember, Guy told us that God is other-centered. He talked about the O in the middle of the word God, O for other. 
God is other-centered, and we've just seen that. God the Father is outward-focused toward His Son. The Son focused only on the Father. So if they're existing in this perfect trinity, that's why they created us. Maybe an example here will help. Have you ever, have you ever done something in your life that was so fun, so exciting, so impactful to you that you long to have someone to share it with you? Yeah? Imagine what that would be like for the Trinity. They're existing together in this perfect community, so loving, but they're so outward focused that they long to share it. So God creates us. So that he could share that kind of community with us. He doesn't need us. Perfectly self-sufficient in the Trinity. But he longs to share it with us. And so he creates us. That's what it is to be missional. God creates us and invites us into that relationship. That's missional. It's invitational. Healthy is oneness in diversity. Missional is invitational. Invitation to something that God is experiencing and something that we experience in God. You see, God has invited us into that relationship and he has given, it, given us the power of his spirit, which is the personification of the very relationship between father and son. He has given that to us to be in relationship with him. We are being united to Christ by the power of the Spirit. And Christ is leading us into oneness with our Father. How does Jesus start the Lord's Prayer? Our Father. Whose Father? His and ours. We're being invited into the essence of that relationship. That's missional. We're Trinitarian people. We are missional because God is missional. We are healthy because God is healthy. By our natures, as new creatures in Christ, we are healthy and missional people. We're Trinitarian. We have no choice. But we goof it up. And let's talk about some of the ways that we should be Trinitarian people and some of the ways we goof it up. First is an inner oneness with the Trinity. I've said that we're invited into this oneness with the Trinity. So I'm on this journey, you're on this journey. Oneness with the Trinity. And this is where it goes off track. Jesus says the Spirit is in us. Says that in John 14. He also says he and the Father will make their home in us. He says that in John 14. He talks about um, us being in him and his Father. So we're in God. He says that in John 15. Listen to what he prays for us. In John 17, he says that they may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe you sent me. This idea of God and me, me and God, is confusing. Paul tries to clarify it in 1 Corinthians. He says, do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is, a, is one body with her? For God says the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. So Paul uses the marriage metaphor, which is God's favorite metaphor for us and him in relationship. 
this mysterious two becoming one. And that's what happens with the Trinity. We're invited into the Trinity. We become one with God in relationship. It is a mystery. The 2,000 years since Christ, spiritual writers have picked up on this theme of Jesus and Paul. This idea that we're being united with Christ. Julian of Norwich, who was a writer some 650 years ago, said, the fruit, of the, purpose, the fruit and purpose of prayer is to be one with and like God in all things. I like that phrase, one with God. And like God. It is, isn't it? Because when the two become one, right? If you've been married a long time, you know that you kind of become like each other. Right? In a healthy marriage... The two become more like each other. Well, God doesn't become like us, but we become more like him in healthy relationship. One with God. Theologian Robert Mulholland reflects on this prayer of Jesus in John 17 this way. He says, Jesus is praying that we might be this, have this, excuse me, Jesus is praying that we might be in the same relationship of loving union with God as he is. This is confirmed by Jesus' statement, which he concludes, in which he concludes his assertion that he has given us the glory that God gave him in order that we may be one that, that uh, we may be one as he is and he as the father is one to be restored to the glory for which we were created is inseparable from being restored to a relationship of loving union with God that's the goal of christianity is to be one with God and we get off track because we lose that vision we make it about other things We make it about my sinfulness. I want to be holy. I need to be well. That's all self-centered. Those are good things, and they are outcomes of unity with God. But they're not the end. The end is union with God in loving relationship. That's where transformation takes place. The two become one, and we are transformed. So we need to pray for the passion that God puts in our heart. Psalm 37.4 says, God will give us the passions of our heart. Well, that means that God puts the passions in our heart. So we pray for the passion in our heart to long for him, to cooperate with the Holy Spirit working in us, who unites us with Christ, who then leads us into oneness with our Father. That's Christianity. That's the heart of it. And without that vision, we get off track. Sadly, this is the state of the world's church today. We're mostly off track in this. Because we preach so much about sin and atonement, all great things. But we've lost the true vision of being united with Christ and the power that comes from that. Second place of derailment our relationship with each other. We're one with Christ. We're one with each other in body. Second place of derailment. Remember, because we are Trinitarian people, we can't help but be community people. Because the Trinity exists in community, as Trinitarian people, we exist in community. Now, it looks different. If you're a reserved sort of person like I am, you may have just a few friends. If you're an outgoing, gregarious sort of person, you may have lots of friends. But you can't help but be in community. And because we're each different than each other, 
Now you pick up the Trinitarian theme of being one together in diversity. So we are unique people, but we are one. One in diversity. And there we pick up the Trinitarian theme again. Commenting on John 17, 21, uh, uh, an author in the Cambridge uh, commentary writes, the unity of believers is like the unity of the Father and the Son. Not merely a moral unity of disposition and purpose, but a vital unity in which the members share the life of one and the same organism. A mere agreement in opinion and aim would not convince the world. So being one in the body of Christ means more than just being one in purpose. And it means more than just getting along together. It means in its very essence that organically we are one together, one body, sharing life. We're not just a bunch of individuals that show up together. But we are one. Unity and diversity. Oneness and diversity. You see, um, we're the body of Christ. That means more than just we gather together and we're this ethereal, spiritual body. Some of us imagine Jesus physically sitting next to the Father on the throne. I'm not sure that that's the right way to envision Jesus. I think Jesus now physically exists as us. His body worldwide. We are the physical body of Christ right now. And I think we lose that. We are his physical body together on the earth right now. Yep. And where do we go wrong in this? Because we idealize what community is. We have this wonderful view of how we should get along. We should, we should come to church with smiles on our faces. When somebody says, how are you doing? We say, fine. We just get along. There's never any disagreement. That's actually a very harmful view of the body of Christ. For two reasons. One, it seriously misconstrues what Jesus and what Paul says about the body. And the second is, it's a very big turnoff to people who walk into a church desperately needing help and they just see plastic people who seem to have nothing wrong. And they don't know how to get the help only Jesus can give them. Because we don't seem to need it because everything's fine. Here's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says about community. It's pretty challenging. He says, Innumerable times a whole Christian community has broken down because it has sprung from an ideal. He says, By sheer grace, God will not permit us to live for a brief period in a dream world. He does not abandon us to those rapturous experiences and lofty moods that come over us like a dream. God is not a God of emotions, but a God of truth. Only that fellowship which faces such disillusionment with all its unhappy and ugly aspects begins to be what it should be in God's sight, begins to grasp in faith the promise that is given to it. The sooner this shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and to a community, the better for both. Every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if the genuine community is to survive. Thus, the very hour of disillusionment with my brother, you, becomes incomparably beneficial because it so thoroughly teaches me that neither one of us can live by our own words and deeds, but only by the one word or deed which really binds us together, 
the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. That's Christian community. With all our warts and foibles and failings, we're going to stick together. That's community. Because whether you like me or not, whether I like you or not, we are spiritual brothers and sisters. Nothing can change that. So whether in sickness and health, for better or worse, richer or poorer, we're together. We're in this together. When I have to ask you for forgiveness, it's pretty humbling. It's where I learn true humility. When I need to forgive you and I realize I can't do it on my own, it's where I learn how much I need Jesus. When I desperately need your love, your support, you need to be there for me. I need to be there for you. This is where we begin to see Christ in each other. And it's where we begin to see, because I have to be in relationship with you, all the junk that's in me comes up too. And I realize how much I need Christ. You see, our journey with Christ is an individual journey, me and God, that we do together. It can't be any other way. It's individual and communal. You cannot be transformed in the likeness of Christ without community. It will not happen. It will not happen. Because we're Trinitarian people. And because we're Trinitarian people, we live in community. The last thing, this idea of mission. What does it mean to be missional? First of all, you have to be healthy. So you have to be in some reasonably good relationship with Christ first and with the body. Remember Veritas. There was a healthy missional church, there was the um, stable church, there was the um, um, critical moment, thank you, and then at risk. Missional only occurs in a healthy church. You didn't have a, a stable missional church, you didn't have a critical moment missional church, and you didn't have an at risk missional church. Mission can only really come from a healthy church. Healthy mission comes from a healthy church. Again, the Cambridge Commentary. The unity of believers with one another will produce such external results that the world will be induced to believe Christian unity and love is a moral miracle, a conquesting of the resisting will of man, more convincing than a physical miracle, which is a conquest of unresisting nature. The unity of the body is a miracle because, quite frankly, we don't want to be together. I don't want to love you very much. I want to get my way. And you're a means to do it. And when you get in my way, I get mad because it stops me from getting my way. And so to live differently, to live incarnationally, to live with one another is a miracle far more convincing than a physical miracle. This is why community is so important to mission. And how do we goof that up? I talked about it last week, that we are just radically individual, particularly in this country, and particularly out west in this country. How many times do you hear people talk about my ministry? Let me tell you about my ministry. Really? Nobody does anything on their own in Christianity, right? Individuality is foreign to biblical Christianity. We have made it the norm. 
There's no such thing as my ministry or your ministry. It's our ministry. We do everything out of community. Jesus did it out of the community of the Trinity. Jesus sent people out two by two. It's always out of community. The other thing we do is we reduce relationship with God to a set of rules. And we assume that that's being missional. I'm just going to teach you the rules or hit you with the rules. And we forget about that vision of being one with God and inviting people into that, which is true mission. There are several biblical examples of mission. One is ancient Israel. The ancient world was really a brutal place to live. It was far more brutal than we can imagine. And so when God came in with his laws in Leviticus, even though they sounded pretty harsh, they were far and away more just than anything that existed in the world at that time. Far and away. Let me give you an example. In Genesis 4, um, Lamech, he brags that he killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. Well, that's pretty brutal. And then he says, if Cain is avenged sevenfold, then I am avenged seventy-sevenfold. That was the nature of the ancient world. God came in and said, no, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. A just way of living. Radically different thinking. And so this way, Israel lived differently. And by their living, they were invitational to a different way of life. A second way, in the New Testament, Acts 2 and Acts 4, we see the church living together, sharing together, eating bread together, praying together. A different sort of unity that existed in that world. An important unity because they didn't have the social safety nets that we have now, welfare and and, um, social security and all of those kinds of things. You needed each other. So they were together in a way that was very different and was customary in that world. Very invitational. My favorite example is in the book of John, chapter 1 when Andrew and a friend see Jesus for the first time and they start following him. They say, where are you going? And Jesus says, come and see. And then Andrew races off and finds his brother and says, we have found the Messiah, come and see. That's invitational. That's what we do. We say to the world, we have found the Christ, come and see. That's missional. And because we're Trinitarian people, we're compelled to say it to people. We're compelled to invite. Because we're Trinitarian people, we are compelled to live it out in community, in our own lives. And because we're Trinitarian people, we're compelled to serve others, to show it. So we invite in a number of ways. Back to the commentator, the Cambridge commentator. He says that um, the division and animosities of Christians are a perpetual stumbling block to the world. The divisions and animosities of Christians are a perpetual stumbling block to the world. Because we proclaim Christ, we proclaim unity in diversity. We proclaim invitation and we can't get along. And we're a stumbling block to the world. We're Trinitarian people. We're on this journey to be one with God, one with each other, 
And out of that, be inviting to a world that so desperately needs us. Eldon Trueblood, who was a, a Quaker writer back in the 1940s, he said, A true Christian community is so attractive that a wise person would travel any distance to join it. I believe it was true then, it was true, it's true now. It was true back when Jesus said it. Trueblood also suggests that Jesus gambles it all on one roll of the dice. Us. He says, you are salt and light. He didn't say try to be. He said, you are salt and light. The world desperately needs us. So church, that's our call from God. To be one with him. To be one with each other in diversity. And then out of that remarkable experience, just as God longed to invite us into it, we experience God in such a profound way one-on-one and together, that we can't help but want to invite others into it because it's such a profound experience. And if you're not experiencing that, then your mission work will be stunted because your transformational work is stunted. world shouldn't be a stumbling block to us. It it can be, and it often is, because we often let the world into the church. But it shouldn't be. Yeah. It often is, but it shouldn't be. In fact, Henry Nouwen says that the most important work of the church is to prevent the world from coming in in terms of influence. If we lose our salt, we lose our saltiness. There is no other salt, church. Let's pray. Father, your ways are mysterious. Jesus, you thanked your Father when you said that His ways confound the wise, and they do seem confounding to us. But Lord, this is part of the great mystery, that you've invited us into your your life together in the Trinity. So Lord, I pray that you give us a strong vision of what it is to be united with you, that we would be willing to reorder our lives so that we might be in deeper relationship with you, Lord, as you would ask us to do. And then out of that, Lord, we are able to live in community in a powerful way. And that we will be salt and light in the world. So help us, Lord. Have mercy on us. And thank you that you love us. And we pray this in Christ. Amen.